This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to Pacific Review, where we'll take a look at the key stories from around the region. I'm Evan Wasuka and coming up on the show, the Pacific makes its presence felt at the World Pride in Sydney, but there's concerns back home. The ashes of a respected professor returns home with an apology from the Fiji government. And you may have heard of snowboarding, but what about volcano surfing? But first, an Australian professor and two of his Papua New Guinea colleagues were freed after being held hostage for a week in a remote part of the country. Money was paid for their safe return, but nowhere near the more than million dollars originally demanded. PNG correspondent Natalie Whiting with more on the story. After a week in the wilderness, the three hostages stepped off a plane in Port Moresby and were greeted by PNG's Prime Minister, James Marape. I did apologise to the professor and the, and the two Papua New Guinea hostages for the incident. Australian professor Bryce Barker and his PNG colleagues, Tepsi Benny and Jamina Haro, were then whisked away in a waiting car. The three researchers, along with another team member, Kathy Alex, who was released three days earlier, had been completing fieldwork for an archaeological research project through the University of Southern Queensland in a remote part of the highlands near Mount Bosavi when they were taken hostage. It was a, a random opportunity crime that took place, but something that I condemned in the very strongest term possible. A ransom was paid to ensure their safe release, but it was far less than what was originally demanded by the gang that kidnapped them. The criminals remain at large, for now. Dozens of police and defence personnel have been flown into the area in recent days. The country's police commissioner, David Manning, says the operation will continue now that the hostages are out. Uh, We're very much uh, committed to ensuring that those who are responsible... Uh, held to account. It's not just a law and order issue, it's also political. While the plane was in the air bringing Professor Barker and his colleagues back to Port Moresby, the terminal where it was set to land changed, seemingly to allow Prime Minister James Marape to welcome them and give a press conference. There was a brief traffic jam as police, diplomatic and media vehicles quickly moved locations. My government placed the highest ever budget to police this year. And so we will not rest. This is just the first phase of the operation. Second phase continues. Third phase continues to ensure that those who engage in criminal enterprise by the barrel of the gun uh, are facing the laws of our country. While high-profile kidnap for ransom cases are rare in PNG, this gang and others have long been terrorising villages in the Mount Bosavi region. President of the Basavi local level government, Daffy Mio, sent his apologies to the families and called for action. The suspect must face the full force of the law. Villagers assisted with passing on information and protecting another foreigner who happened to be in the area. Will there be ongoing security support for the villagers, many of whom are very concerned that there could be retribution or further criminal attacks on them following this incident? No, go on go into the details of this ongoing operation, but uh, yes, we have taken those concerns on board. Let me tell all the criminals, police firepower is always higher than uh, criminal firepower. 
I will not tolerate this sort of nonsense anymore. And so, uh, yes, up there, police will remain, uh, soldiers will remain. Mr Marape says they will not rest until the matter is resolved. Natalie Whiting in Port Moresby with that report. And now joining me to talk through some of the key stories from the week is Pacific Beat presenter Priyanka Srinivasan. Priyanka, let's start in Vanuatu, where the capital Port Vila was hit by a cyclone. What's the latest there? Yes, Evan, that was a cyclone, Judy. It struck Vanuatu's capital, Port Vila, on Thursday morning. It was expected to be a Category 3 cyclone. It did move up to Category 4, bringing with it with it the typical strong gusts of winds, um, sea surges. Uh, the uh, damage that it had on Port Vila was quite significant, led to the cutting of power. Power lines, power um, went off for several hours in a lot of communities there in Port Villa. There were roadblocks um, caused by fallen branches and fallen trees. Housing and food gardens were also destroyed. There were also reports that more than 400 people there were evacuated. And it's sort of one bad thing after the other because severe Cyclone Kevin is also passing through Vanuatu just as Cyclone Judy left the land uh, there. That is a Category 3 cyclone, but it's expected again to strengthen to a Category 4 and bring very similar destruction to Vanuatu. And that prospect has people like the Pacific Community's Melanesian director, Mia Ruman, saying that more attention needs to be paid on the impact of climate change and how that is influencing and creating these more devastating and quite more frequent natural disasters in the Pacific. Let's take a listen to her now. With these things happening as a regular event in all of these Pacific Island baby little countries, we need to be able to help these countries to adapt and also to be prepared and have resilient infrastructure, have better shelters, have better housing, more secure climate resilient infrastructure and agriculture. The cost to food systems and food security is extremely high. People's gardens, whole whole plantations of coconuts have been destroyed through these cyclones and will continue to be. So this is going to be something that the world has to understand that these countries don't have much that they can rely on. There is not much back up. Now, Priyanka, speaking of cyclones, China is offering to help by developing a new uh, center to manage natural disasters for the Pacific. What will this center do, Priyanka? Well, Evan, we don't have much detail, much information coming out about about the center yet. What we do know is based on local reports, and they're saying the center was launched very recently in Guangdong province in China. It's called the China Pacific Island Countries Center for Disaster Risk Reduction Cooperation. Quite a mouthful there. But basically, it says that it will um, reportedly provide Pacific countries with assistance, including monitoring for disaster risks and also conducting rescue operations. During the launch of the centre, as I said, it happened um, just a few weeks ago, delegates from the Pacific and China were there. And of course, this all comes with this backdrop of of competing geopolitical influence in the region. Um, We have particularly China and US allies and United States itself itself jostling for influence in the Pacific, um, particularly after that signing of that uh, controversial security deal between Beijing and Solomon Islands last year. 
But a former diplomat, a former Chinese diplomat, Han Yang, spoke to us, and he said that whatever the reason that's behind this new center opening in China, the Pacific should welcome the assistance. It signals uh, China's uh, further commitment to provide um, disaster assistance and uh, aid to the Pacific region, and so this is uh, perhaps a first step. And there will be more investment coming coming up later. And I think uh, it's well from the from the viewpoint of the Pacific uh, countries, it, they they should welcome the, the any aid they can um, obtain, especially. Uh, Considering the Pacific region is one of the most disaster-ridden regions around the world. Now, Priyanka, let's go to this story that's been ongoing for quite a while now, and it's about this New Zealand pilot that was taken hostage um, in West Papua. What's the latest there? Yes, so Indonesian authorities have said that they have forces surrounding the separatists that are holding, as you said, that New Zealand pilot. Um, But authorities have said that they will exercise restraint and negotiations for the pilot's release are continuing. And this is all about that Susi Air pilot, Philip Mertens. He's a New Zealand pilot and was taken uh, captive by the Papua National Liberation Army more than three weeks ago now after um, his plane landed in this remote region. Um, he was then taken captive, where he remains in captivity, we understand, um, and his, his plane was set alight. Um, the group there are demanding that in Indonesia recognize the region's independence, that's West Papuan independence, and that Indonesia also withdraws its troops from the region before they release the pilot. Um, now, uh, not, not only have authorities uh, given an update about the, the status of this uh, hostage crisis, but the airline founder herself, that's Susie Ayres' founder, has also spoken out. Now, she's expressed her sadness and have, has apologized for the situation there in, um, in the Papua region of Indonesia. And, and she also made this interesting remark that this hostage crisis has actually resulted in a decrease to up to 70% of Suzier's services into that region. She said that that's affected um, the delivery of, of important medical equipment. Um, she also said that they, her airline was uh, participating and, and working with authorities and trying to negotiate that safe release of uh, pilot Philip Mertens. And that was Pacific Beat presenter Priyanka Srinivasan. Several countries in the Pacific still criminalize homosexuality, where same-sex relationships can carry up to 14 years in jail. And though these laws are rarely used, activists say discrimination against LGBTQI people is a massive problem on the islands. As Dubravka Volader reports from World Pride in Sydney, change could be coming. Yeah, being a Sydney resident now for the past 12 years, I've been a part of Mardi Gras for about eight years, was working with Mardi Gras as well. And I feel with this year being World Pride and the shift in energy is actually amazing. I I can already see the diversity and having representation of POC and our mob brothers and sisters is very evident and it's needed. It's It's our time. And I'm seeing so many POC activations this pride that makes my heart flutter. I think it's it's been a long time coming and to see it in its 
glory today is so beautiful. Now, you're producing a All Pacifica cast event that is happening at World Pride uh, this, in these coming days. Um, tell me a little bit about it. Yeah, so Ova Ova is written and creative directed by JC Tanovasa, who is a beautiful film queen from New Zealand, Auckland. I brought her over to initially creative direct the show because I really wanted to... In Australia, we haven't really done anything where we've mixed queer culture, Pacific culture, in a modern artistic way. And her experience in New Zealand, having been from the performing arts sector, being a leader in the Vogue performance ballroom scene in New Zealand as well, being the mother of the House of Oman, all that experience and then her show that she's putting together for Over Over is just a beautiful contemporary fusion show highlighting all different elements of our culture, the Pacifica culture, and those living in Western countries from the Oceania. And it's an expression through song, Pacific dance, vogue, fashion, drag, poetry, production. It's its own, yeah, I just, it's exciting. That's all I can say. All I know is that you have to be there to experience it. And can you explain to me what the term over over means? Yeah, so over over it has two interpretations. So it has the Samoan meaning, which means like oh over, you know, like it's giving um um over in the Samoan meaning can mean extra extra, um like it's so extra or or um referring in I guess an example would be like. Um, when somebody's serving a beautiful look and somebody's got that essence and, you know, you can just be like, oh, you know, it's it's kind of, it's that slang. And then in, in, um, in ballroom, it means category clothes or they are worth the grand prize. So it's like a worthiness kind of thing. So it's a, it's, it's a slang of, um, in ways you could use it as too hot to handle or, you know, game over. <laughs> How significant is that? And what does it mean to have such great Pacific uh, rainbow representation, um, especially at World Pride at Sydney this year? It means a lot. It means, like, growing up in Australia, being Pacifica and queer, where a lot of the time conformed to either be rugby players or be sports players or when we finish school certain jobs and and that kind of thing and it's 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 kind of like a trauma that's forever just going round and round but um i feel like providing these opportunities for our future generations to show them that we it's okay to channel that inner performer and if if you feel that artistic side that's okay as well i think being pacifica you you go to uh, you you grow up in the church and you perform in the church and it can sometimes build uh, animosity or trauma around that as well and i think showing um, putting on a showcase where it's not just traditional most most uh most uh Pacific Island show uh, uh, culture shows are very traditional or very um, mm, yeah, just very traditional. Where I feel like with over over, it's it's uh, its own art. It's hard to explain how we how it's um, going to change the game. All I know is that the energy that the audience will feel will be on another level, and also because our cast is is Fem queen led and fem queen is a term that we in ballroom use for our trans woman. So the main cast of our show is led by 
by femme queens. It's it's based around our femme queens. And I think that's, that in itself is going to be an epic storyline. Rokin John Chionko from Guam speaking there to Dubravka Volodaire. Fiji's Prime Minister has apologized to the family of well-known academic Bridge Lal for what he says is cruel and inhumane treatment at the hands of the former government. Professor Lal, a vocal critic of the Bainimarama regime, was forced to leave the country in 2009 and never allowed to return. He died in Australia last year, but one of the first acts of the new Fijian government was to lift the travel ban so his ashes could be brought home. Liam Fox with this report. Since their exile, Padma Nasi Lal and her husband Bridge always hoped to return to Fiji, but not this way. In the 12 years of being in exile, not for one moment, Bridge and I had lost hope of returning. We remained optimistic. One day we said to ourselves, we will return to our country of birth, continue our respective research, and continue to contribute in whatever little ways we can. All that time, we never ever considered that one of us may not be returning home without the other in person. Now she's back in Fiji to scatter her husband's ashes at the small cane-growing community of Tambia, where Professor Lal grew up. At a memorial service, Dr Nasi Lal recalled his last days in Fiji back in 2009. Bridge was arrested, taken into... Queen Elizabeth Barracks. At the barracks, Bridge was interrogated, subject to verbal violence, spat at and slapped by the then Commissioner of Police. With explosive anger, the Commissioner of Police forced Bridge to fly to Australia on the first flight out the next day, threatening that if he didn't, I, his wife, will have to go and collect him from the Suva Mall. In the lead-up to last year's election, Sitaveni Rambuka promised to lift the travel ban on the Lyles. It was a promise he fulfilled hours after being elected Prime Minister on the floor of Fiji's parliament, ending Frank Bainimarama's 16 years in power. To me, Professor Lal and Dr Barma were constant reminders of the oppression that bedeviled Fiji. The cruelest cut of all came when Professor Lal died a little over a year ago, when Dr. Parma applied to return to Fiji carrying his ashes, her requests were not, not even acknowledged. Even in death, there was no mercy. To applause from the crowd, he apologised to the Lyles on behalf of the governments and people of Fiji. We apologise. We're sorry. We are ashamed for the way you and Professor Lal were treated and promise to you that during our term, such injustices will not be repeated. During the Bainimarama years, Biman Prasad was an opposition MP and he advocated ceaselessly for the Lals and the lifting of their travel ban. He's now the Deputy Prime Minister and told those at the memorial service their return to Fiji is hugely symbolic. Because it permanently buries oppression being endured for the last 16 years in this country. It is about justice being done to a couple and family that became the first Fiji-born citizens to be exiled from the land of their birth. Dr Nasi Lal held back tears as she thanked Mr Rambuka and Professor Prasad for their help. 
I know Bridge would feel or would have felt validated by the democratic outcomes of the elections, even if, even if this came too late for him personally to return to his beloved homeland. And I know I will feel at peace knowing that I have fulfilled Bridge's last wishes of returning home. Dr. Padma Nasilal ending that report from Liam Fox. Now to some sports news. You may have heard of snowboarding, but how about volcano boarding? It's an extreme sport first started decades ago by an American journalist on Vanuatu's active volcano, Mount Yasur. Today, it's got enthusiasts all around the world, many traveling to far-flung countries just to luge between the molten lava. Priyanka Stronivasan with this report. We're here on the island of Tana in Vanuatu, and this is the most famous landmark uh, right behind us. This is Mount Yasser. It's not for the faint of heart, but for adrenaline junkies, sliding down the side of a volcano is a unique high that can't be matched. Look, two, three. (laughs) Volcano boarding, sometimes called volcano surfing, is just like it sounds, skiing through the fine black ash and pumice that coats the sides of volcanoes. Tourists head to sites around the world for the tectonic thrill, often using snowboards or specially designed sandboards for the adventure. And in Vanuatu, the reported birthplace of volcano surfing, the sport is still alive. Charlie Williams is a tourist operator on Tanna Island. I've been there to the volcano and I saw some some tourists are coming and, and asked the volcano office to go and surf. On the volcano. Charlie says he hasn't taken to the black slopes of Mount Yasur himself, but he has heard of other locals doing so. Many of our local people are going, they have their own ski boat. Uh, they go with uh, their surfboard to the volcano and they surf here. Some of the local people do are going with the uh, tourists. Today, tourism operators around the world, from Nicaragua to Italy and Japan, try to attract thrill-seeking tourists to surf their volcanoes. Some are dormant, but many enthusiasts find sliding down active volcanoes as the true expression of the sport. A lot of the danger is either in poisonous gases, that was the big danger up there, or in in falling lava bombs. Zoltan Ishvan is credited with inventing volcano boarding when he produced this report for National Geographic more than 20 years ago. In the tiny South Pacific country of Vanuatu. But that's where we find snowboarder Zoltan Istvan searching for the ultimate adventure. I stopped in Tana in 1995 with my sailboat and um, went to the top of the volcano. At, at that time, it was already a tourist destination, at least for adventurers. I mean, Vanuatu even now doesn't have much tourism. But And when I was there, I even had a guy, and we, uh, he gave me a tiny piece of wood. And because I, I told him, I said, has anyone gone down this? He said, no, we don't go down. We just kind of look, you know, walk up it. And I said, well, let me try going down. And this was like very early. I don't want to call this formally starting volcano boarding because it really wasn't. First, I went on my butt, and the wood was too small to actually stand comfortably on. But I knew that it worked just based on this this bit of sledding experience and I knew that someday I'd have to come back. Come back he did, this time with a camera. Approximately seven years later in 2002 uh, I got a job uh, out of College for National Geographic uh, the channel and I told them about the story and they said, Zolt, 
go do it. And this sounds like a great story. And that's how volcano boarding was born. And a lot of interest in volcano boarding kind of stemmed from that because, I mean, there are, after all, you know, tens of millions of snowboarders around the world. Smoke rising. Underneath me, the earth is shaking. Zoltan says the experience is very similar to snowboarding, but there are some notable differences. So the slope that I was going down, the main thing was to actually swerve around the lava bombs. Sometimes they were the size of a giant rock, maybe a meter across. Other times they were just the you know size of your fist. But either way, you didn't want to hit them with your snowboard because they're super sharp. Mm. And and the other thing is that behind you, when these volcanoes exploding, which happens about every two to three to seven minutes, um, it shoots up all this pumice and all this rock. And if the rock hits you when it goes up a half mile into the air or whatever, however far it goes, maybe it's a thousand meters, it will absolutely kill you. And I also tried this in Papua New Guinea and Rabul. They also have a, a, a very active volcano. Um, if you if, if something's exploding and you're worried about something falling on you like a molten rock, uh, and some of these molten bombs are like literally the size of Volkswagens, they can be giants, um, then you you it's incredibly dangerous. But if you're just going down kind of a, maybe a dormant volcano on the pumice, then, you know, that's, of course, volcano boarding, but not very exciting. So I think people need to differentiate between those two. Journalist and inventor of volcano boarding, Zoltan Ishvan, speaking there to reporter Priyanka Srinivasan. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Review for this week. Do join us again at the same time next week. Thank you for listening. I'm Evan Wasuka.